I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Sean Johnson. And this is Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are turning into Close Reads at the movies. We're going to be talking about Billy Wilder's movie, The Apartment. Sean, how many times have you seen this movie? A lot of times. (laughs) More or less than Casablanca? I think I have seen this movie more than Casablanca. Okay. Uh, But this is one of those where I will... Sometimes I won't watch the whole movie. Sure. Yeah. I I just I will just watch parts of it for pleasure, and if I don't make it through the whole movie, it's not a big deal, and I'll come back to it yeah. later. Right. Yeah. It's also a good uh, YouTube. Just watch some clips on YouTube. Yeah. That's right. Read bits of the screenplay. Heidi, what about you? I think this is my fourth time watching it, so not as much not as not as much as Casablanca. You all or Casablanca, yeah. but I really love it. Yeah. I just you know I don't actually watch a lot of movies, and I'm not like. I have yeah, a movie on in enough. the background kind of person. Mm. So I'm, but so but what I'm saying is my love for this movie is not reflected in the amount of times I've seen it like it is for y'all. So do you, what what do you have on in the background? Are you a have something on in the background kind no. of person at all? No. Okay. Every like podcasts or music or whatever. Every, um, sometimes I'm listening to a book, but if I am, it's because I like need to, like I'll, I'll be like cooking in the kitchen and listening to a book for listening to the Iliad because I have to I'm doing my lesson planning as I'm chopping onions kind of thing (laughs) but I like to do tasks one thing at a time I'm not like a multitasker I'm I prefer silence (laughs) yeah yeah I really only like to listen to I I only enjoy listening to audiobooks or podcasts if I have to do something like drive I don't no, like to right. have a yeah. book on while I'm while I'm cooking or doing tasks around the house. Uh, same yeah. for me. I'm the yeah. same way. Yeah. Yep. David. All right. Well, speaking of you, oh, love I've, this movie. I have only heard yeah. of this movie because of you. You are the one who introduced this movie to me. Yeah. Some days it's my favorite movie. It's it's definitely up there for me. Um, it's a it's a, it's a great holiday movie. It takes place from Christmas Eve to New Year's Eve. So we wanted to drop it between Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. So uh, we'll be talking about it uh, with all our categories. All the things that you're used to us talking about on Close Reads at the Movies, if you have been listening to these episodes, including, yes, I will ask Heidi about wardrobe. All of that, but first, the trailer. Ingredient number one, a very warm, very wonderful story about a boy, a girl, and a very special kind of problem. Did you hear what I said, Miss Kublik? I absolutely adore you. Shut up and deal. Ingredient number two, a brilliant cast. Jack Lemon in a delightful role which gives full reign to Jack's amazing versatility. Shirley MacLaine, whose glowing warmth lights up the screen like a Christmas tree. Fred McMurray, this is a Fred McMurray you've never seen before. You know, you see a girl a couple of times a week just for laughs, and right away they think you're going to divorce your wife. <laughs> I ask you, is that is that fair? No, sir, it's very unfair, especially to your wife. Yeah. Ingredient number three, Billy Wilder. There's nothing quite like that Billy Wilder, some like it hot kind of laughter. Are we dressing for dinner? You know, just come as you are. So you're pretty good with that racket. You should see my backhand. 
Where'd you see me serve the meatballs? <laughs> Mildred, he's at it again. Okay, so, Sean, the apartment, um, you said you've seen it a lot of times. Um, yeah. We're going to talk about, um, we're going to talk about who steals the show. We're going to talk about our favorite lines. I think uh, this, I think, is one of the greatest screenplays ever written. You know, for me, it's it's it, it's full of all the things that I want most in a movie. And we'll talk about that uh, in a little bit. Um, we'll talk about wardrobe. We'll talk about our favorite scenes. We'll talk about the holidayness of it. And I kind of want to start there. But first, I'm just going to kind of do a quick rundown. So this is a 1960 uh, kind of like one of the the grandfathers of the romantic comedy genre. It's produced and directed by Billy Wilder, who also made a slew of movies like, oh, what would you say? What would you say is his most famous movie? Some Like It Hot? Some Like It Hot. Sunset Boulevard, Ace in the Hole. Sunset I Boulevard, mean, yeah. yeah. Probably Sun, um, Some Like It Hot is probably his most famous, but amazing, yeah. amazing film director. Uh, it stars Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine, Fred McMurray, uh, and a bunch of other great character actors. It was written by Billy Wilder along with I.A.L. Diamond, uh, his screenwriting partner. Yep. Um, and uh, it was the eighth highest grossing film of 1960 at the 33rd Academy Awards. It was nominated for 10 awards. It won five, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. Uh, Lemon, McLean, and uh, one of the supporting actors, Jack Crucian, were all Oscar nominated. And then Lemon and McLean won Golden Globe Awards for their performances. And uh, it's kind of considered one, certainly one of the greatest films ever. And as I said, it's, it's, it's one of the early examples of what we now call the, the romantic comedy. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. But let's, let's get into the holidayness of this movie. Let me ask you this first, because I think it's an interesting context for talking about this movie as a holiday movie. Heidi, what are your favorite Christmas movies? I mean, my favorite Christmas movie is The Muppet Christmas Carol. Okay. <laughs> Okay. I love that movie. My parents Every, just watched that for the first time and they loved it. No it's way. So good. <laughs> I wish it's I could have been there for that. Man. An objectively good movie. Um, I also, but all of my favorite Christmas movies are my favorites because they're sentimental to me, not because mm-hmm. I think they're great movies. Sure. Like I love yeah, Home yeah, Alone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, well, Home Alone's a good movie. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it makes no sense, but it was. Christmas Vacation. Funny. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. know why it's a good movie. It just is. <laughs> You probably no. know why Christmas like the movies plot are, makes no sense. Yeah. yeah, no, the plot makes no sense. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of things about like a little lot of gaps in Home Alone yeah. in terms of. But who it's, cares? Yeah. But it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, Charlie. There also are in, in I love, Christmas Vacation. Love oh yeah, Charlie. Brown. Oh yeah, Charlie yeah. Brown Christmas. So I'm a very sentimental Christmas movie person, and I'm like fine with being sentimental at Christmas time. I have I never shame myself for it because. I also understand the true meaning of Christmas, but so <laughs> yeah, right. Um, do you? Yeah, I think this. You like it's a wonderful life. Yeah, I do. Um, it's you, it's not like a family favorite. I think I introduced my kids to it too young, hmm. and they're so now it's so, like that old movie that yeah they were confused by when they were little. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't watch it every Christmas, but hmm. I do. 
I do like really like it, but I don't have the same kind of attachment to it that most people do. And yeah. I really don't like a Christmas story because I feel like that mom's life is a living hell. Yeah, that movie gets bleaker every time I see it. That's what I think. Yeah, I think I know, it's like yeah. existentially terrifying. <laughs> So my in-laws have that on all day yep. at oh, yeah. Christmas on Christmas Day because you know it runs yep. on TBS or whatever, uh-huh. and they'll just put it on in the background. Speaking yep. of things in the background, and I'd never seen it until I joined their family. Like we did not watch that as kids, and I don't, I don't really know why. I just think it, you know, you can yeah. only watch so many things, and basically that means I encountered it as a young adult for the first time. <laughs> and there's there were a few scenes that I thought were pretty funny, but I was I remember being like, boy, this would be this would feel different if I watched it for the first time as like a like an eight-year-old, it would be funnier. As a young adult, it's like creepier. <laughs> it is. It's like the abyss. I'm like, oh gosh. Yeah, it's brutal. But anyway. Uh, okay, Sean. I also really love Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, I like, this is not to be like pretentious or one anybody up. Uh, I really like the the French film, Joyeux Noel. Oh yeah, I love that movie. Uh, which is about the... Uh, the spontaneous ceasefire during World War One, like the Christmas ceasefire, uh, and the aftermath for all of the the decent men <laughs> who were involved in it. Yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I love that movie. Hey, do you think uh, that's a family friendly movie? Uh, I might have to watch it again with that question in mind before I answered with confidence. But I think probably. I don't know that I would watch it with all of my children at this point, but yeah, I might yeah. watch it with my 10 year old barring any, yeah. any glaring oversights in my memory. Yeah. Yeah. What else? I, I think we've talked about this before. I sometimes watch uh, the, I'm going to have to say another not foreign film in a minute, but I, I sometimes watch Akiru, uh, the Japanese sort of version of it's a wonderful life instead yeah. of watching it's a wonderful life because I think it does a better job at being it's a wonderful life than it's a wonderful life does. Although I do love Jimmy Stewart in that movie. Uh, and that that was the movie that was just remade uh, with Bill uh, Nye, Bill Nye uh, living as living. Yeah. 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 Uh, but then I, no, I also really do. <laughs> I really do also enjoy Muppet Christmas Carol. Uh, that's one that, Man, I could watch so often. And there maybe there's a nice sort of corollary between that movie and The Apartment even because uh, there's a nice contrast of tones and moods. I think mm-hmm. uh, Michael Caine absolutely makes that movie by absolutely pretending he's not in a Muppet movie. <laughs> yeah, right. And it just oh, he it like crushes dead it. dead nails Ebenezer absolutely. Scrooge. He's like yep. the best Ebenezer Scrooge I've ever seen. Did you just say yep. he dead nails him? Yeah. Dead, he dead door nails him. Dead door nails him. Uh, and there's I even, Heidi, the do you... Do you know the do you know the cut musical number uh-huh. from yeah. the movie? Uh, yeah, that is if you can find folks who are listening. If you haven't seen uh, what's it called? When love is gone. When love is gone. Yeah, if you can find the, the it makes musical the movie number, much better if you watch cut the from whole the thing. Film. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so good. I think you can. Uh, there's like a DVD special feature or something where you can watch it with the I scene added in. Or, yeah, please. <laughs> you have to sing Michael Caine's part though. That's the best part. Okay, so I asked about this in connection to the apartment because it is a holiday. The apartment is a holiday movie, but I wanted to know kind of like in what way is it a holiday movie? What are we looking for in a holiday movie? Heidi, you mentioned the sentimentality, and the apartment really, um, although it 
at the time it was reviewed as being a little bit sentimental um, by some of the critics. It doesn't fit the bill and what you typically would think of for a holiday movie, which maybe is why it kind of trend does sort of transcend the holiday movie genre. You could watch it anytime. You can yeah. it's considered one of the top 50 greatest movies ever, all that kind of stuff. Although It's a Wonderful Life probably is too. And so is Ikiru. Um or Ikiru. Um so in what like how does this fit into the canon of holiday movies, do you think, Sean? Well, it's hard to say because it's not about a young woman who's been hardened by life in the city and then she returns to a small town uh, where <laughs> an old love is rekindled. And, but she has to question whether she is willing to pay the price uh, of her prosperous life her, in yeah. order to you know, re-embrace the small town values that she was I'm raised like in. like a glass blower or something. <laughs> in, the fl- in the flame of embracing flannel, a, a man <laughs> who is uncommonly strong. With great boots, uh, yes. just impressive hair. He's the yeah, town veterinarian right, yeah. and lumberjack, and he secretly in, inherited a fortune. So it's actually not going to be a problem either way for her. Uh, but he also doesn't use a smartphone. He's like really <laughs> technically a Luddite, but but he still manages to drive like a super nice truck. And he's actually Santa's son, and he's wrestling with whether or not he should take over the family That's business. That's ridiculous. <laughs> you have derailed. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I think it's so funny too, because while some, uh, original reviewers criticized the movie as being overly sentimental, uh, over the years, Wilder's films, including this one have also been criticized as being too cynical. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny that this, that both attacks could be leveled at the same movie. Uh, and I think it fits into the Christmas movie canon as a photo negative Christmas movie in some ways. Hmm. And hmm. Uh, this I like is, that way of putting it Well, this. This is um, I th- I'm pretty sure if I remember where I first encountered this idea, it was Roger Ebert. So I've got to give credit where credit's due. But uh, one review I read, I'm pretty sure it was Ebert said something like um, this is tapping into like the deep loneliness that is created by Christmas, right? That you have the people who have a home to go home to. There's the whole, there's the whole like work slave world that we can talk about you know, more, but that at the end of the day, people escape that by going to a home and a family, or there are the people who go home to an empty house. Yeah. Uh, and no time is that more lonely uh, than at Christmas time. And then, and then you have Jack Lemmon. <laughs> Who can't even who can't even go home to his empty house, uh, and that that's just the the yeah because his home is being used by up. by people who are cheating on their wives. <laughs> yeah, they're abandoning their homes. You know, it's yeah. like the the premise it, without out of context. Just the premise that there's this guy who works for this insurance company whose bosses are using his apartment as their place to have trysts with their mistresses is incredibly dark. Yeah, right. incredibly dark. Howdy, what were you gonna say? Yeah, I it this story about it being a Christmas movie, it's very much like like how the Iliad isn't really about the Trojan War, it's about the rage <laughs> of Achilles, but it has to take place during a war for right. it to really highlight the rage of Achilles, right? And that's how it is with this movie. Like it it's exactly everything about this movie is exactly right. Like it's everything is perfect, precise. Yeah. Um and yeah. 
uh, and, and it had to take place at Christmas because of exactly what you just said, but it's not about Christmas. And, and, and so Christmas is the backdrop that's necessary for the setting in order to kind of evoke and explore all of these, um, this like tragic comedy that unfolds before you, um, and that couldn't have happened at any other time, but it's not about that time. So this movie takes place between Christmas and Mm -hmm. New Year's. It's kind of a weird, like space between like in between week. Yeah. Liminal. Like, yeah. So you've got in the church, it's this really high time, right? It's between Christmas and Epiphany. It's the 12 days of Christmas outside of the church. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like a weird, almost Christmas is all over. It's a little depressing. And then you get into New Year's and everyone celebrates that there's a new year, but then you're kind of like, what do I do now? There's a new year and you have all these goals. It's it's just a weird time of year. And the book, I mean, this movie riffs on that and and really plays with that, Mm -hmm. that sense of time. Do you think that the tone that Sean was talking about, Heidi, has to do with, with when it takes place? Yeah, I do. Because it's, uh, you know, the week before Christmas for most of us is like so much preparation, so much expectation. Um, and then Sean, as you're pointing out, uh, for those who don't have that family, call that like tight family culture, then it's like this apprehension, right. And sadness and loneliness. Um, and, and then afterwards is a bit of a, I think, a bit of a letdown for everybody. Yeah. And in this movie, that's particularly important um, because that's mirroring what, especially Fran is feeling, right? This expectation, he's finally going to leave his wife. For me, no, it's just this letdown after everybody else seems to get what they want and then she never does. And that, that in between time when no one is paying attention to those who are left out, that's when she's crashing, right? right yeah. So I do think yeah. it's very important. And right before the new year, um, like this idea of like the new beginning, which is of course how the movie ends. How the movie ends, yeah. Right. Um, but we're all kind of waiting for this new beginning after this crash and letdown for her. Yeah, and I think I think to the the setting, the corporate setting contributes to that as well. Because what we get is this, uh, and even with the way that that Wilder frames some of his camera shots inside the workplace, uh, it's very mm-hmm. much, uh, you know, these this mass of faceless company men. Right? The, the opening voiceover yeah. monologue even talks about so how good. they have to be, like the, the times have to be, the dismissal times have to be staggered. Uh, so yeah. that the machine can function uh, yep. effectively and efficiently. Uh, and Baxter's as we, a cog. Yeah, he's a cog. And as we go on, uh, we see all of the ways in which this organization uh, is breaking down the things that kind of make a joyful holiday celebration possible. Uh, it's totally antithetical to the family, right? You have all these guys who are who are serial adulterers. And the company Christmas party is just carousing. Uh, yes, like out of the Great Gatsby or something. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, with the with the added context that you know how many of these people are married and philandering and and all that, uh, and so that that too I think uh, is 
the has been dismantling. I mean, you know, I don't want to call this, I don't want to turn this into like a war on the family conversation, but right, dismantling the the sort of family household uh, kind of entity that most of us associate with a a the means of celebrating a holiday like Christmas. I think it's really important that this movie comes out in 1960. So we're at the end of the fifties, you know, there's this, uh, there's this notion of like American prosperity and, you know, all these sort of feelings that, you know, we're on the right path and there's economic prosperity and all these sorts of things. But then 1960 happens and then, which becomes this very pivotal decade of like, it's almost like a conflagration by the time the decade yeah. ends. 1969 is one of the most, you know, wild and impactful years in, in certainly in the 20th century in America. Yeah. No doubt. Um, and so this movie comes out at the beginning of that decade, following on the heels of the 50s, you know, the Eisenhower 50s and all that. And it's basically saying, yeah, we're we're wealthy. We've got all this economic status. We've got the ability to run these massive businesses, most of which probably gained most of their money because of the war. And <laughs> yet that it's basically cynical about that notion. Yeah. That there is a sort of you know, peace on the home front, I mean, or peace in general that leads to this, you know, the the sort of glorious American prosperity and family and all that kind of stuff. The things that we think of with the 50s, the nuclear family and all that. And it's really cynical. Like at the beginning of the movie, it's really cynical about all that. Yeah. But by the end of the movie, where does it stand? At the end of the movie, we have Baxter sort of, he's, he, and I've got lots of questions about Baxter. Um, he basically earns the, the mensch title that his neighbor refers to him as. And yeah. um, do we, do we think that it's hopeful in the end? I do. Oh yeah. I yeah, definitely I so. do. But I don't know who these people are that would call this movie sentimental. <laughs> I don't think it's cynical, but to me, it seems intentionally anti-sentimental. Yeah. That, the that the result, I think the resolution is like human, right? And that's the, that's the whole point. You're now a mensch. Yeah. It's the genius of the final line of the movie too. Yeah. It it resists the dissolving into the schmaltzy romantic finale. Shut up and deal. Yeah. 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 Instead of shut up and kiss me. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is, which is, we got to talk about the romantic comedy elements too. This movie is really, you can talk about it on so many different layers. Um, there's the, the holiday movie layer. There's the romantic comedy layer. There's the just the moral questions layer. Um, do we? What do you? Let's talk about Baxter. We I just mentioned it before we get into some of these categories that we like to talk about normally. Baxter is um, he's letting people use his apartment. He's kind of let himself get pushed around, but he's basically not fighting back. Yeah, he's looking at he's he's valuing his career in that over making the right moral choice. He's kind of. Operating in sort of like, an, would you say like an amoral gray area? He's I think not... he's capitulating to the amoral atmosphere. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, but he's taken with this this girl who works in the elevator and um, Shirley MacLaine's character who is in this relationship with, you know, this really terrible... Shelterage. <laughs> uh, yeah. Just like really... Uh, this Fred McMurray... And he is, he's using her, he's demeaning her, he's kind of also, he's also using Baxter. 
Yeah, I, I would say they're in parallel positions uh, with respect to Sheldrake. Baxter. Baxter and... And, and Fran. Uh, yeah, Fran, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, so how do you... I mean, like, one of the criticisms that I've seen of this movie or, you know, talk to people who say, well, but Baxter's not really a good guy. Like, he kind of isn't doing... So Heidi just made a face. So you, yeah. how do you think he's a good guy? Of course I do, but <laughs> he has to grow into it. Like, he has yeah. this inherent honor. Um mm-hmm when he wants to do the right thing, but well, I want to take that back at the beginning of the movie. He is, like I said, just capitulating. He's neutral. Yeah. He's doing the easy thing. Like he has and- the sense of the sense of gain uh, that is real and needful. Right. He talks about, he's a numbers guy and he talks about what his apartment costs and what his take home pay is. Right. That's one of the first things he tells us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so there's this sense of, I need money to exist in this world and uh and so he partly out of especially fear right he's not he's not courageous yeah especially in new york uh yeah. he is he chooses he chooses a paycheck uh at the expense of yeah i think a real moral awareness that he possesses but suppresses yeah finish yeah. that what you're saying yeah so then he but then he makes a human connection with this girl that he likes. And yeah. at the beginning, he likes her. And then he ends up having to defend her to protect her. He goes through everything that a man has to go through in a story to become a hero, right? But he doesn't see himself that way. And then he goes on this like very, I don't know, he goes on like a true hero's journey, but mm-hmm. it's in a in in a very specialized dehumanizing context and that's how he learns to become a human um so by the end of of the movie yeah he's a truly good man an honorable man and even a heroic man um but that's that that is the journey of the movie for him yeah well i think it's so important that the movie's called the apartment because Mm -hmm. because it's at the beginning of the movie it's used for this nefarious purposes right and then by the end of the movie it's this it's the place that allows him to like to protect her you know yeah right um and it's also where he has this awakening about who she you know the, one of the best scenes of any movie ever and one of the best shot scenes ever is when she is sleeping in his apartment and he realizes that she is the one that's ha- that's having the affair with sheldrake with the you got the cracked mirror the cracked and he's mirror. looking at it and the way yeah. it's shot that's that's an incredible scene it's incredibly moving and his performance is so subtle mm-hmm. um i you know jack lemon's a really funny guy yeah. And he he has this sort of mid-century sense of humor and like demeanor about him and he's the same guy that played what was a grumpy old man later. Yeah. <laughs> um and he could do straight comedy and in this movie he sometimes does, you know, he delivers some of these lines like like the the otherwise lines, right? right. Where he'll he'll add <laughs> wise to the end of it, right? And and gracious and living he, wise. Yeah, he he has this incredible ability to spit out the dialogue like a true comic genius, right? And he belongs on that, maybe not the Mount Rushmore of great comic actors, but he is on the shortlist. Yeah. And uh, yet he's doing some incredible dramatic acting in some of these scenes too. And when his face turns from comic to deeply sad, yeah. the movie gets the movie really takes shape because you realize, oh, it's not just cynical, that mm-hmm. it's after something richer. And that happens because of the way. Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine, I think, 
mm-hmm. act with so much subtlety in a movie that's really about the last for so much of it. I mean, in the face yeah. of that cynicism, it's really well written and really funny. And so when when it when it turns is when like he has sort of these awakenings. And then it, yeah, and then he and then he has to become a man. She has to make the right choice. And the th- and the difference is that he's being de- you know, there's this dehumanization at work. The, the, the sense that he's just a cog. Meanwhile, Fran's being dehumanized by everybody, but especially by Sheldrake. And he's she recognizes that in Baxter, like it's a he's treating her like a human being. Yeah. And then he takes her to the apartment where everyone else is like having these affairs and leaving their stuff behind and all that kind of stuff. And when she, he's in the apartment with her, of all people, he inverts the whole thing and like puts her in the room by herself and gives her privacy and doesn't take advantage of her and do all the things that other these other people would have done. And that's when you start to see, okay, there is the seed of something truly honorable here, to your point, yeah. Heidi. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about Fran and Shirley MacLaine at all before we get into... We probably should. A couple of categories. Yeah. yeah. I think Underrated she's actress. so good in this movie. Yeah. Because she's, she has the most difficult part to play because she has to be... She's in a very compromising moral situation, which is not a typical leading lady kind of right kind of role, yeah. right? Yeah, she's not an ingenue. Um, she's uh, she's been deceived, but she can't be stupid. She's sleeping <laughs> she with a married guy. She's but chosen she has her situation, likable, yeah. right? Yeah, and yeah, she can't be a floozy. She's participatory in this situation. Um, but she also has to be attractive enough to this good guy that we get it right. Like she's in a really tough spot and her, like her, her part in the, in the show is not comic. Like it's, she has some good lines. She can, uh, she, but most of her lines, most of her memorable lines are about her suffering. Yeah. They're pretty sad. They are like, she she has this look on her face. Yes. Mm-hmm. And she nails it. Like, mm-hmm. I like her. I'm rooting for her the whole time. I believe she's a good person. Um, I want to rescue her, but I also think she's strong enough to endure. Like, everything about her, I I just think, I don't know how she did that role. That's one of the hardest leading lady roles I've ever seen played out on screen. And that goes to the romantic comedy of it all, because right. in a lot of times... The romantic comedy, the the leading lady in a romantic comedy is going to be, you know, um, like Meg Ryan in You've Got Mail, or yeah. um, Meg Bryan in When Harry Got Met Sally, or Meg, Meg Ryan, Ryan and, and right, <laughs> yeah. of the Volcano, <laughs> yeah. Um, but she's got to she's got to be a little bit goofy, a little bit silly, but like winning and like yeah. able to really carry the scenes and and you know Shirley MacLaine can do all of that, but but it's the movie really is really wrapped up in her and her sad her sadness and her situation because yeah. baxter is you know th- th- trying to help her out of it really in a way i don't maybe that's a little that might be a little bit overly simplistic because he like, really likes her yeah. but um yeah she's she's incredible and and it well do the romantic comedy genre like it's so much no one's not many movies have ever really lived up to it but it was at this point that people started looking at it and being like, okay, that's a, we can do movies like this. But no one could do anything that balanced the the moral ambiguity, the the questions, the drama with the with like the the romance in it, where you're really rooting for the couple to get together, the will they or won't they? 
Um, You've Got Mail kind of maybe does, but really that's just the moral questions there are just sort of creepy because he's, they're kind of like, he's kind of stalking her in a way. Um, (laughs) I don't think anything that there's not that many movies that are really well remembered that have quite lived up to the complexity of this one. It's hard to replicate. I agree. Yeah. It doesn't require as much of the central characters, especially, honestly, especially with after the sexual revolution, when it was just assumed that they would be sleeping together and sleeping and sleeping with other people. Yeah. That's not the case in 1960. Yeah. So they're working very hard to preserve uh, in the movie, the perception of this woman as, as, as traditionally understood virtuous and, but she's sleeping with a married guy. So it's just, it's really complicated for her to, be in this role and she just does such a good job with it and of course in 1960 they do you know it's all anything that that's all implied yeah that they're sleeping together it's not on screen it's not part of the dialogue even you just kind of understand that they're they're they have a thing and of course he calls her they have a phone she calls him at home or whatever and he flips out about it wants to dictate all the terms and that's one thing about baxter is that he's not he doesn't go around dictating terms and that actually works out in his relationship with her because he has a patience and a and a long suffering that's it's not driven by it like the need to dominate or to anything like that. Okay, let's talk about um let's talk about who steals the show. Who who do you think is there anybody in this? I mean, like, and by that I mean we typically mean so if you're listening to this, we're gonna make this episode uh not us, we're gonna open it up to everybody. We don't the subscriber oh. exclusive the closer to the movies are usually just a subscriber exclusive. This film so for the holidays, to be... we're gonna open it up to everybody. So <laughs> we everyone. have a couple of categories that we do. We're gonna talk about our favorite line, we're gonna talk about who steals the show, favorite shots, favorite scenes, and some wardrobe stuff. Uh so let's start with who steals the show. And what we mean by that is uh who kind of like steals the scenes that they're in, and that usually just means it's not the the main stars. Um, Shirley McLean, Jack Lemon, they're awesome. Um, they're hard to look away from. So is there anybody in this movie that you think, uh, you know, kind of, I don't know, steals the show when they're in the scene? Fred McMurray, is he in it too much to count? I, yeah, I think so. And I, though he's compelling as a, a slimy guy and his, his, history of roles is really fascinating because I mean, he did do, he did double indemnity too. Uh, but outside of these few roles, he was known mostly as, you know, like the, the upstanding Potter familius, uh, you know, my three sons kind of father knows best kind of guy. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. And so he is, he does make a convincing slimy dirtball monster here. <laughs> Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. But but I don't know that he's a scene stealer. Yeah. In that sense. I really like uh Dr. Dreyfus. Jack Crucian. Yeah, Jack Crucian. Uh I think he He's nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for this movie. Uh, rightfully so. Uh yeah, I think I think he is uh very uh winsome and you know quirky and enjoyable. Uh, he's got that sort of uh, folksy chutzpah, but he also serves a real uh, pivotal role as uh, a kind of overt conscience in the movie. Yeah, uh, he's he's patient. He's a a patient moral voice. I mean, he uh, he 
he never he never refuses to have some, anything to do with his neighbor and he's always there compassionately uh lending aid but also unambiguously condemning what he believes is you know uh uh tawdry and um, immoral behavior Heidi, do you have any other anybody else um, that you would i just think shirley mclean and jack lemon are so compelling it's hard to say anybody else steals the show yeah but mm-hmm. i think that one character i like and i think does a really good job and he's a little bit like Chekhov's gun is <laughs> um is Sheldrake's secretary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's such a good character because so much Edie of, Adams plays Miss Olson. Yeah. Miss Olson. So much of the movie like hinges on her. So much of right. the plot of the movie depends on her role. And and they slow roll like her in the she's just the secretary and then she is listening on the phone and then she's at she's the Chinese talk- restaurant. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. she's talking at the Christmas party and revealing Mr. Sheldrake's sleazy character, yeah. uh, which we can kind of see coming a mile away, but it <laughs> still comes as like she does a good job. And I think the actress who plays her, what do you say her name is Edie Edie Adams. Adams. She does a good job with her. Um, as this very understated but pivotal role, um, and you see her, uh, her like the spurned lover. You can see that she does a good job. I think portraying that character, but also being subtle yeah. about it. Um, and we see in her, of course, uh, Miss Kubelik's future. Like this is right. this is you. Yeah, a potential uh, future, right? There's there's yeah. a life of bitter fixation. Yeah. Because clearly this is a years-long program of revenge that she's, she's executing here. Exactly. Uh, or suicide. Uh, or, you know, a complete right. lack of lack of care, total detachment. So she also mm. then provides a contrast because you can see that Fran is self-destructive, not others destructive, right? Right. Um, which makes her more appealing to us yep. than this other spurned woman. Um, and so she, Fran is neither a floozy nor a bitter, vengeful, spurned woman. So I just, I, I don't know that I would say that she necessarily steals the show but she's good in her role and the role is so important in the movie even yeah, though it's understated agreed. she's a really accomplished like she did a lot of tv a few movies and she did a bunch of stage stuff um i'm i, I she i'm surprised she didn't i mean you know that's the story of hollywood i guess people who didn't quite you know get to the next level uh fun fun casting note the santa claus in the bar you guys know who played him oh uh Al no. Smith, no, the original Mr. Whitaker on Adventures in Odyssey. Stop it. Oh, what? He also, of course, was... Um, was the, he, cool. He's done other things. He was on Andy Griffith. He played the town drunk on Andy. The town and, drunk, the that's Andy. right. Yep. So, and then he also um, replaced Sterling Holloway on Winnie the Pooh as Owl. And was, so he did a bunch of uh, Winnie the Pooh stuff. Oh, so I love the idea that Hal Smith, who plays Mr. Whitaker, was the town drunk on Andy Griffith and the drunk and the Santa drunk Claus Santa. in the apartment. Um, I love it. Okay. Let's talk about our favorite lines. So I'll read a few lines here and then you guys can tell me if there's anything else that stands out for you. Um, there's Baxter says, the mirror, it's broken. And Fran says, yes, I know. I like it that way. It makes me look the way I feel. Um, the shut up and deal at the end. Baxter says, that's the way it crumbles, cookie-wise. Cookie-wise. Uh, Fran says, when you're in love with a married man, you shouldn't wear mascara. Um, you should see my backhand. Whole- 
Yeah, um, you should see my backhand. That's a great Baxter one. Um, Margie says, nights like this, it sort of spooks you walking into an empty apartment. And Baxter said, I said I had no family. I didn't say I had an empty apartment. Um, uh, Baxter says, you know, I used to live like Robinson Crusoe. I mean, shipwrecked among 8 million people. And then one day I saw a footprint in the sand and there you were. Um, uh, Fran says, he's a taker. And Baxter says, a what? And Fran says, some people take, some people get took and they know they're getting took and there's nothing they can do about it. Um, there's a couple other like long scenes is the whole kneecap joke. Um, my, my favorite. Yeah. What you got? Uh, is those are some, those are, those are fantastic. And I love, uh, it would be great if I could find like a whole list of the, the X Y's lines, because some of them are used so well. Right. Uh, but then, you know, they're, they're, they're here and they're gone in in a moment. But one of my favorite exchanges is when Shell Drake is trying to get some, uh, commiseration from Baxter and says, you know, you see a girl a couple of times, uh, have some laughs and right away, they think you're going to divorce your wife. Now, is that fair? And Baxter says, no, it's very unfair beat, especially to your wife. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's one of those. And so the, um, David, you read, yeah, it was you that recommended it to me, right? Uh, Mr. Wilder and me. Yeah. Yeah. This novel about the making of, uh, Billy Wilder's last film. Yeah, he and, and uh, IAL Diamond. Yeah. And one of the things, one of the the true pieces of information, it was a really meticulously researched novel uh, because the main many of the main characters are real people. Uh, but one of the details that comes out is that Wilder uh, insisted that the actors deliver Diamond's lines exactly as they were written. If they varied even a little bit, if they said cannot instead of can't right? like Matt Weiner. Uh, yeah. He would, he would cut and they would do it again. There was no improvisation uh, because the script was painstakingly constructed and uh, Wilder had such confidence in it that that's what, that's what the movie had to be, what was written on that page. Uh, and so all of the, all of the dialogue is so thoughtful then in that way, like every, every moment, every phrase is, is so carefully crafted and I love that exchange because it's an example of the thousand different times that just a little hanging piece of dialogue is doing so much work uh, in characterization wise. Uh, just that little bit of Baxter's tone mm-hmm. offering to commiserate with Sheldrake, but then the the words. The judgment. Uh, yeah, especially to your wife. Yeah, you know he's uh, different. In yeah, that moment. Yeah, you know he's different. It's a challenge without, uh, but it's not one that is pressed or insisted upon. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great example of what makes this movie so good. I'm glad you mentioned Billy Wilder's, you know, strictness on the script. Yeah. Um, but there's a couple things that he did improvise that they left in. Um, you know when he squirts the bottle of nasal spray across the room? <laughs> That's improvised. And then also, one of the great, Heidi just mentioned it, the, the backhand line. Um, yeah. The singing while cooking spaghetti, which he strains through the tennis racket, that is improvised. Yeah, and then um, where he gets lemon gets punched, uh, he was he was supposed to he didn't step right, and so he actually got punched. So they left in <laughs> the part where he actually gets hit. Um, so there's some good stuff like that. Okay, a couple other lines here, um, and then Heidi, if you've got any, Fran says, "Why do people have to love people anyway?" Uh, Fran says, "I never I never catch colds." And Baxter says, really? I was reading some f- some figures from the Sickness and Accident Claims Division. You know that the average New Yorker between the ages of 20 and 50 is two and a half colds a year? That makes me feel just terrible, says Fran. 
And Baxter says, why? And he, she says, well, to make the figures come out even, if I have no colds a year, some poor slob must have five colds a year. And Baxter <laughs> says, yeah, it's me. Um, so there's lots of good, like that's good romantic comedy dialogue there. Yeah. Uh, just because I wear a uniform doesn't make me a Girl Scout. Fran says that. How do you got anything else? I love the scene in the bar between um, Sheldrake and Fran when they mm. first come, when they first meet each other. I love all the little digs she takes at him. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the sauce line, like when she's, uh, I've missed yeah. you like old times, same booth, same sweet song, right? Yeah. Sweet and sour. I love that scene. And that is the scene that gave me a love for daiquiris. Like really hey. start the <laughs> nice. best cocktail. Those are so <laughs> not, not the dumb ones you get. No. At, at, you know, a beachside bar that you drink. The, in the, uh, the Hemingway gross. daiquiri. But a real daiquiri. Those are delicious. <laughs> Heidi, there is one line that uh, makes yeah. me think of you. Yeah. Um, Fran says, shall I light the candles? And Baxter says, it's a must. Gracious living wise. Gracious, Gracious living, living wise. wise. <laughs> and then uh, there's, so that, <laughs> yeah. there's that one where Kirkaby says, premium wise and billing wise were 18% of last year, October wise. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I love I love the evolution of that joke. Yeah. Because yeah. it does start as just this this way that he parrots a guy that he wants to ingratiate himself to. Uh but then by the end he really owns the the phrase and it's used so well. It is. It's great. I also really like the girl in the bar who asks him about Castro. I like wait <laughs> yeah. for that scene every yeah, time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, she's constantly talking about her husband while she's trying to pick this guy up. And, and when yeah. he says that he's like her husband's like a little chihuahua. <laughs> he's a five foot two. 99 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's so much good stuff. Um there's the appendix joke. Um <laughs> and then the knee uh, joke. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then there's um let's see. There's, what is it, Jeff? Who's on the phone? And Sheldrake says, oh, one of our employees had an accident. I don't know why they bother me with these things on Christmas Day, which is so ruthless and uh, brutal because yeah, yeah. he just found out about the girls, the mistress that he's had, you know, having an affair. I mean, mistress is like harsh. That sounds harsh for, for Fran, but I guess well, that's true. true. Yeah. And then, and when, when Lemon's character asks him if he, th- if he wants to come see her and he, he, refuses because it wouldn't be fitting right it wouldn't be wouldn't be appropriate as if anything that he has been doing up to that point is fitting Mm -hmm. or appropriate yeah yeah he's a yeah he's a great terrible character when he gives her the hundred dollars oh man yeah and it's it just makes me love the screenplay so much because it's such a and it is a big thing it's not a small thing but right like there's there's but it's not Nothing on the nose. Nobody has to explain what's happening. Yes. Like it's so demeaning. And, but it allows him to think he's being magnanimous. Yeah. Like it's one of those, like, as you're writing the screenplay, like it's just so perfect. Yeah. That mm-hmm. moment's like so, it's like hard to watch for me. And the look on her face. And then when she takes off her coat and it's like, you paid for it, like it's so, that's just a, powerful moment this is a really sad movie for a lot of it well to your point two of my favorite lines or one of my favorite things about the script is the way fran and baxter will go 
back and forth in explaining their loneliness to each other. Right. And so then in the end, when they you presumably are going to end up together, it really hits home because... So there's the line where Baxter says, it's a wonderful thing, dinner for two. And Fran says, do you usually eat alone? And he says, oh no, sometimes I have dinner with Ed Sullivan or sometimes Dinah Shore or Harry Como. <laughs> the other night I had dinner with Mae West. Of course, she was much younger then. Um, and so you get like this... Re- like It's funny, but boy, is it sad. And then she yeah. says that line... What do you call it when somebody keeps getting smashed up in automobile accidents? And he says, a bad insurance risk. And Fran says, that's me with men. So they're like really confiding in each other yeah. in a way that makes it that much more, you know, happy, I guess, is the, you know, cathartic when they end up together at the end. Okay. Um, let's talk about what's your favorite scene? Is there like is there one that ultimately kind of stand out for you guys? I guess it's probably the spaghetti scene. I mean, it's a good one. Watch me. I mean, it's just so classic. (laughs) I think this is a movie that has. It's. I was thinking about this question as I was watching it uh, yesterday, and because I knew you were going to ask, and I was like, "It's this is such a dialogue and subtle movie. Like Mm -hmm. it's such a dialogue-driven movie, and it's so subtle. It doesn't have, in my opinion, like big." film stealing scenes but it it has like quiet moments and like very pointed moments to it Mm. um that are so laden like have so much weight and like heft to them um but in terms of like just a scene that i think is lovely because it has the comedy and the tragedy in it is that is 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 the spaghetti scene the dinner scene yeah. Yeah. I think my runner up maybe would be the the longer scene uh, where where they're trying to save her life, because it has been even even the really sad things in the movie have been sort of joked about up to that point. But then the 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 inhumanity uh, on the part of some of the main characters, Sheldrake particularly, uh, all of a sudden has a very visible price. Mm-hmm. The stakes ratchet up significantly in that moment. It's very, uh, just a very visceral scene as they're trying to like literally coax a person uh, into staying alive. Mm. Uh, but I think David, you mentioned it already. I think my my absolute favorite scene, though it is short, just because of how subtle it is and how much uh, emotional acting has to be done in the features of the characters is the is the mirror scene when he realizes that mm. she is the woman yeah uh she is the it's woman so that brilliantly shot too yeah. yeah it's hard to shoot in a tight space like that yeah so uh, i love all those scenes it's one of my favorite movies but i think honestly one of my all-time favorite scenes in any movie is the ending and it's not just the shut up and deal it's what leads to that because right. fran and sheldrake are having that conversation at the restaurant Yep. And uh, Sheldrake's like, I rented a car. You know, we're going to drive to Atlantic City. Hey, Logan, if you could find that scene on YouTube somewhere and drop it in here, it could be a fun thing to do to, to drop in audio of the final scene. Oh, yeah. Um, because the dialogue is really good. Um, so he says, you know, she's like, Atlantic City, why are we going there? And uh, he says, I know it's a drag, but you can't find a hotel room in town. Drag, but you can't find a hotel room in town, not on New Year's Eve. Ring out the old year, ring in the new Ring and ding ding. I didn't plan it this way, Fran. Actually, it's all Baxter's fault. Baxter? Hey, wouldn't give me the key to the apartment. 
He wouldn't? No, he just walked out on me. Quit. Threw that big fat jaw right in my face. The nerve. Yeah, little punk. After all I did for him, said I couldn't bring anybody to the apartment, especially not Miss Kubelik. What's he got against you anyway? I don't know. I guess that's the way it crumbles, cookie-wise. And in this screenplay, it says, "I've so I've printed out this screenplay. Like I read it all the time. I think it's <laughs> like if the the actual stuff between the lines is really beautiful. Um, but it says it says that she has a faraway look in her eye, and then she says." I don't know. I guess that's the way it crumbles, cookie wise. <laughs> so then the joke comes back around, and yeah, it's in yeah. her, the, like it, her getting to say it builds this like connection between them for the yes. audience, yeah. which is in, which is so well done and cathartic. And then Sheldrake's like, "What are you talking about?" And she says, "I'd spell it out for you. Only I can't spell." <laughs> and then all right Lang plays. Moment, all Lang Syne plays. Yeah, yep. it's so yep. perfect. And then it says in this in the script it says friends okay so he she says says the play, the piano player is consulting the watch on his upraised left arm he drops the arm in his signal and the lights go out at the same time he strikes up Auld Lang Syne all over the dimly lit room couples get to their feet embracing and joining in the song in the last booth Sheldrake leans across the table kisses friend happy new year friend <laughs> friend's expression is preoccupied. Sheldrake faces in the direction of the pianist and holding his glass aloft, sings along with the others. As Auld Lang Syne comes to an end, the place explodes noisily. There's a din of horns, ratchets, and shouted greetings. The lights come up again. In the last booth, Sheldrake turns towards Fran, but she's no longer there. Her paper hat lies abandoned on her vacated chair. He rises, cranes his neck, and trying to spot her in the crowd. And then, of course, it dissolves to his brownstone, and she comes she comes running in to the <laughs> yeah. apartment and she's got the coat like isn't she like wearing the coat over her she's got that really nice coat on again right yeah um she comes running in and pounds on the door and like there's it's it's the classic romantic comedy thing right where they run yeah. to meet each other and it's like she hears this is she the hears birth of the, the trope drop. yeah exactly yeah and then he asks her she asks how his knee is and he's like i'm fine all over <laughs> it's like so good mind if i come in and he's like still stunned um and uh, it says that in the script, it says the room is the same as we left it, except for an empty champagne glass standing on the coffee table. And then he says, let me get another glass. And he goes to one of the cartons, takes out a champagne glass wrapped in newspaper and starts to unwrap it. And then talks about they're moving and all that. And then you ultimately get to shut up and deal. And then she takes off the card. And uh, this is how the script ends. Bud begins to deal, never taking his eyes off her. Fran removes her coat, starts picking up her cards and arranging them. Bud... A look of pure joy on his face deals and deals and keeps dealing. And that's about it, story-wise. Oh. <laughs> so this it's I, I love the whole like it, it the so whole great. thing is so it's very like it's great to read. The whole thing is great to read. Um so that's just I just got I just wanted to nerd out a little bit on my favorite screenplay. I love it. Okay, let's talk about some wardrobe, Heidi. Mm. Um this is not like you know, quite as, uh, you know, it's not like Grace Kelly and Rear Window or Ingrid Bergman right. and Casablanca, but there are still some some wardrobe things to discuss. What stood out to you? And then we'll have to go, we'll have to like ask Sean about suits or something. Yeah, <laughs> it's really just how understated her wardrobe is because her character has to not be flashy. Yeah. Uh, but she's very classy. Like that black dress, the, the black dress with the V-neck and the pearls um, and is so it's so beautiful. Like I would totally wear that dress. I have a dress like it. 
Um, but, and it's like classy and lovely um, and like a little bit sexy, but not over the top. Like she's in darker colors. You're talking about um, the one at the end? No, the oh, one where she kills herself. Yeah, the one she tries. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, when she yeah, tries yeah. to commit suicide. Um, and like everything she wears is just understated, like draw, shows that she's like a very like lovely and attractive woman, but that she's not a floozy. That's what's so important because so, so many of the other women are, uh, are dressed over the top with the mink and the off the shoulder and the, yeah. you know, and, and that's intentional. There's that contrast there. Um, she has to be understated and that's the right choice. That's the right choice in wardrobe for her. And she's so beautiful already. Like she's such a lovely woman. Um, and her haircuts, another big part of them, of the mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and now she has, she's got short hair, uh, which, um, he doesn't like, you know, Sheldrake doesn't like, and he right. gives her like a jab for it, which is so mean. Um, that's, that's one of the meanest things I think that he says in, <laughs> in the movie, like overtly mean. Um, so yeah. yeah, I like her wardrobe. I think she looks classy, but it's not necessarily memorable. There's that moment though, when she gets out of bed and she's wearing her slip, right. Um, and mm. which, which, after she was like, yeah, when she yeah. yes, she's sleeping in his bed after um after the suicide attempt and she's sleeping it off, which is I think your your little wink at like, look how sexy she is, but she's not trying to be because right. mm. you know, that's she's not wearing that. Um yeah, yeah, yeah. purpose. <laughs> but we get only, little, yeah, yeah. You're only getting to see it because she's had this medical emergency. Exactly. Yeah. Did the the what about the fur coat at the end? Yeah, I know it's lovely. Yep, and which memorable. I, it seems important that she comes in, she takes it off though. Yeah. 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 Cause she's going to stay right. It's a very domestic yeah. moment. Like, this and, is, and it mirrors this, the moment when she takes yeah. off her coat with Sheldrake, right. After yeah. she feels like she has been cheapened and, and bought and paid for. And, and here she's doing it spontaneously. Mm. Cause she wants to be there. And it, I think it's like a signal that like the apartment's not just the apartment. It's now becoming a home. Like there's, yeah. there's a settling down, like she's taking off her, her coat. And, um, and, and so the, there's like that last, that final shift to that, a domestic stage that's brought yeah. about by, by her coming yeah. home to, in a sense. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, we should wrap this up. How we got, how did you got, you got like a brunch about to happen, right? <laughs> I do. Yeah. So, yeah. Full English. Um, yeah. yeah. Full English. <laughs> no, uh, it doesn't sound like it. Baked um, beans and everything. Well, okay. So any final thoughts on this movie? We could talk about a lot more. Um, I, that's what my final thought is like, it's just such yeah. a layered movie. Just, just want to go watch so, it again. Yeah. Like the first time I watched it, I watched it more for like the snappy dialogue. Like mm-hmm. I just thought the screenplay was so wonderful. Um, and I like rewound certain parts to like hear it again or whatever. And I was very surprised at how, at, at the, I was very, I was surprised by it. I thought it was going to be just funny, but it has this pathos to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so subsequent times I've watched it in the future, I just feel like it gets more and more multi-layered and multifaceted. Yeah. So I hope nobody, I hope none of our, I hope all of our listeners will watch it to the end. It is not a an immoral romp <laughs> it is, has a very <laughs> steep like strong moral yeah. center to it yes in part because of the character that doctor character who is exactly. you know 
who is basically, you know, he's there to condemn the behavior of these people, yeah. you know, yeah. he and his wife. They're at it again. And even, Sean. And, and even Baxter, just that made me think, I love the Baxter's interactions with the doctor change or the significance of them changes, right? He, he never, he never disabuses the doctor of his assumptions, but in the beginning, it's just, yeah, yep, I'm a crazy guy, you know me. Uh, but then after, after Fran's suicide attempt, uh, his deception takes on a new significance too, right? Because now he, uh, he is lying to protect her. Uh, it's the first time it's not a he's flippant deception. Himself. He's yeah, he's he is for the he's really and truly yeah, sacrificing himself and his and his reputation and his good name uh, for the sake of this woman. That's great. Mm-hmm. I wish my final thought is we need to watch this movie together sometime. Okay. That would okay. be so fun. Yeah. I would love to do that. Okay. We could we should we could do a live watch of this movie. We could. Ooh, there we you go. Do a and live then watch yeah. Yeah, we should thing, do it in February. We should just watch this movie together. David could just yeah. quote along with it with screenplay <laughs> in hand. <laughs> I actually don't know exactly where that version is. Though I have a book of it. You can buy the you can buy it as a book. So somewhere that is the kind of thing that if I saw that, I would buy it for you. Right. And yeah. now I know you already have it. <laughs> He's finding it. He's going to the bookshop. Listeners. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Here it is. Right. I just remembered that it was in my studio right now. See? Oh, the apartment. Screenplay. Look at that. That's awesome. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of uh, Close Reads the Movies. Thanks for everybody to everybody for listening. Thanks for being with us this year. Um, as I said, this episode is um, open to the whole audience, everybody. Um, but to everyone who listens uh, to Close Reads of the Movies generally means that you're a subscriber. So thank you for that. Um, thank you to everyone who has helped make this show possible, either by uh, you know subscribing or by participating in the community or telling a friend or leaving a review, whatever it is. Thank you for all of that this year in 2023. And we are looking forward to a great uh, 2024. Um, David, do show. we know what our next Close Reads of the Movie movie is? I'm not 100% sure because we got to figure out we're going to you know be rotating movies and sto- short stories and stuff cuz we're yeah. adding the new mysteries. Don't forget that for subscribers in January we're doing Strange Strong Poison by uh <laughs> I mix that up every time by Dorothy Sayers. That's going to be a new each month we're going to talk about a mystery story. So, um we've got lots of great content, but um uh we're still reading Chris and Laverne's daughter. Our next episode on the main show is going to be Summer Lightning that's going to drop on January 1st. So, just the show goes on so to speak so for Heidi White for Sean Johnson I'm David Kern Till next time happy reading and that's the end podcast wise 